0: Yun Li is a Chinese American novelist and short story writer. She left China and came to University of Iowa to study immunology. She discovered her love for literature while studying at Iowa's writers workshop with Marilyn Robinson, whom she credits for teaching her to read deeply. Prayers, and yes. God Boy, Emerald Girl. She has impressed critics and fellow writers with the grace and subtlety of her writing. As one of the 21 Best Young American novelists Under 35 selected by Granta and one of the top 20 writers and 40 named by The New Yorker, Lee has received numerous awards, including wedding award, Lennon Foundation Residency Fellow, 2010 MacArthur Foundation Fellow, 2014 Benjamin H. Danks Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters 2015 Sunday Times EFG Short Story Prize
1: How are you? Uh, Sorry if I'm a bit late. Yes, thanks. Good, how are you? Good. Is the sound okay? I'm very good, thank you. Is the sound okay?
2: It sounds okay for me. How about
1: you? It's good. Excuse me for calling a few minutes late. I was just getting my sound correct. Um, It's all
2: right. So, if by any chance we're disconnected, can you call back?
1: Sure, of of course.
2: Sometimes my cell phone doesn't really do well
1: okay. Well, thanks for taking my call so early in the morning, so. Oh,
2: no problem. Yeah, it's actually, it works out. It's veteran days here, so no
1: school and no work. Oh, it's Armistice Day, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I hear, uh, you You have two sons. Oh, uh, yes, you you hear them around. I have a couple of dogs walking around here, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay, it's it's okay, it's good. Um. Yeah. So, actually, I, I just skip around with my questions. Anyway, um, actually, now we're talking about children. I was wondering, you know, since you came to America and uh, then you got married and you had children, I was wondering how do you feel uh, your fiction has changed? You know,
2: it's interesting because I actually became
1: a writer after
2: I had my first child. Oh, right, so okay. Yeah, so I have always being a mother, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot more, I've been a mother longer than being a writer. Mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, I I, I think for me, just at one point, you know, you're, you're writing in this vacuum and all of a sudden you realize your children are growing up and one day they're going to read your writing. Mm-hmm. And that's a little, that's a little different, but I, you know, that's always on the back of my mind. So, I wouldn't say my fiction has changed greatly, except, you know, uh, I think I'm, I, I mean, how do I put it this way? I would think twice if I put a child to suffering. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah. Okay, I see. I I didn't think about it that way. Yes, I can understand because it was something you were talking about um before about um having your uh parents uh, read your fiction and and then you have this other um, element of responsibility for your children and I can see how it's delicate. But your writing is so delicate. So No, even if you write about things that are shocking, like a, a poisoning or a, a murder or infidelity in a marriage, um, you know, it's done with such delicacy that I think you have no worries to show your children. You
2: know, I, I do think they, well, I don't actually worry so much because I also know they have read much, but some of my work, oh. some of my books. So I, I think it's... You know, it's just interesting. Uh, like you, you you may have a fiction world. Mm. And you think this world has nothing to do with your real life. But it's not true. It's actually the fiction world and the real life they actually overlap sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's an that's an interesting thing because you know, um you know the act of immigration for one thing, it's a it seems to me uh, it's more so something that immigrants think about because you are reinventing yourself, right? Yes. Yes, Absolutely. And uh, yes. sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. <laughs> no, it's it's your interview. But no, I think <laughs> you um you come you come to America, uh, and you you're telling your story a lot because people ask you because they're curious and. And so you think about your life like a beginning and a middle and an end, and it, it, I think it's a, I think, you know, from the writers I've spoken to, it's a great advantage, you know, to speak two languages, to have this many stages of your life.
2: Yes. I think it's, it's special. it's interesting when you say, you know, there's a beginning middle and end. And I think, you know, for those of us who have crossed borders, it's, the artificial beginning is interesting to me. You know, there's a, like a clear cut. You know, that's the old world, that's the old country, and here's the new life, new country. It is a advantage. You know, you are looking at, you, know, you are at life through old, you know, old fears life an old a of eyes and the new pair of eyes, and and there's always that ambivalence. You know, where you belong, and how you belong? And these things, I, I do think that they are advantages of
1: immigrant writers, or writers you know, with two languages, or writers who have two worlds. Because that's something in, in the title story of A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, uh, Mr. Xi's daughter, is her name uh, Yilan? Uh, Yilan, yes. Yeah. So she, she's expressed something that is, it seems close to that. If you grew up in a language, you never learn to express your feelings, and you learn and, and you find yourself through this new language. Yes, and, and
2: it's interesting because that line is often quoted. You know, for better for worse, people quote that line, and and I, like. I, I hate to say, well, that's my feeling. I don't want to align myself with the character. But I just think that's true. When you have a new language, you're, I mean, especially this language you have gained rather than it's given to you as your mother tongue. You have gained this new language. You have gained a lot of new skills with the language. You have gained vocabularies that you, you don't have in your mother tongue. And those things are important.
1: Sure, and not just that, I mean, I find, you know, in speaking another language, and especially that moment when you're not proficient at it, that there you can be more honest because you don't have a choice to be so elegant and not dishonest, but you can't hide yourself so much.
2: Yes, and you have to be to the point sometimes,
1: right? Right. Yeah, you can, but that's that's liberating. It's in a way, it's almost like an actor who is embodying a role. You are yourself, like an actor becomes themselves, even if they're in a character that's not who they are. But yes. you have this freedom to express a different part of yourself.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you, and and you know, I think especially you know if you take if you take the script away from the act just give the minimum words. You know, yes, they have to find exact words to say the exact things they need to say. And I think I, I think all oh, immigrants, or even you know, when we learn a language, we really actually, I agree with you, we, we went through that stage.
1: Um, and I think, I mean, one thing that's fascinating, uh, why I enjoy your, your novels and stories, is that your fiction also addresses old-fashioned themes. So like duty, shame, honor, loss of face, uh, suppressed emotion, um, mm-hmm. collective responsibility. And this is not addressed by a lot of writers because of the way society is now. Yeah, you know,
2: I think I might be an old-fashioned writer. I think people often comment that I'm a 19th-century writer. And... <laughs> Maybe it's true. And uh, I think there are different ways to look at the world. I mean, I think it's not because my characters live in this older world. It is, you know, I mean, if you look at, for instance, Americans, I think, for instance, due to shame, you know, these oppressed, oppressed feelings. I look around at Americans around me. I think they feel these things acutely, but it's not something that would be written or oftentimes written by American writers because Americans. I, I do think American writers write, you know, different things, where they focus on different themes. And so, for me, I'm just drawn to those characters and I'm drawn to those themes.
1: Oh, it's very to me. It's it's very. I don't think it's so old-fashioned, but it's a contemporary. Uh, but it's a t- contemporary truth for certain people. So to me, because I grew up in a multigenerational immigrant family, and so that's normal to me. Yeah. Uh, you yes. know, grandfather and grandmother. You know, that, that's more normal. Um. Well, they're Chinese. Uh, Chinese from my my grandfather. Uh, but it's uh, not Mandarin-speaking Cantonese. So, um, mm-hmm. but I'm not. Uh, how do you say? I I I have that culture, but I left uh, America, where most of my family live now, uh, when I was oh. young. So, um, but to me, yeah. it's very real. Sorry. Go ahead.
2: You have Irish background
1: too. Oh yes, Irish as well. And I, I'm Irish American, but I have Irish passport too. Oh, okay, yeah. See, so you
2: understand, I think it's a mix you know, it's a mixed thing and we all bring our like, And see, actually I actually think of Irish and American I mean, the Irish and the Chinese are quite alike in many ways.
1: Oh, that's strange, yes, because you have an affinity, I think, um you spoke about him as being one of your teachers, William Trevor. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and
2: yeah, I, I think so, yeah,
1: so. And because, that's an interesting thing too, because it's not spoken about a lot, but all my Chinese friends, I don't know, uh, when I'm growing up, I think the impression is that, among Americans, uh, that... Chinese, they lump all the Asians together, and and I don't think that Asians still are perceived as being very humorous. But I find Chinese are very funny. That's when you said to me they have a lot in common with, uh, with Irish. Uh, I I think that that's one of the things.
2: Yes. You know, I, I, it's interesting because when people lump people together, I think they lack imagination in the way that, you know, they look at your skin color, they look at your hair color, and they put you together. There was this, I don't know if you read, I think last year there was this, uh, there was this Irish man in Brooklyn, and...
1: He went to China to become a stand-up comedian. I and heard about him. Uh, yes. Yes. And I just thought, he, he said something, he said, well, the
2: Irish and the Chinese are just cousins. And I said, oh, I've said that for years. And it's just the humor and everything. But it's, it's harder to imagine for you know a wider audience if you're from different parts of the world and you look differently.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's changing now, but it's also because... Um, I don't know. I'm mean, not to talk about racism, but there is this perception and because in western country you're still not seeing a lot of representation of um, Asians, of any kind of Asian. So it's quite there is still this foreignness. So but yeah. it it is changing, but um, mm. I don't know. So and, and uh, I, yeah. No, go ahead. I'm listening to you. No,
2: no no no. no, no, no I, I I I'm disagreeing with
1: but it's but it's good too when they when you're not overexposed as well because then as you say you can always be redefining yourself. Yes. Yeah. Um, and well, another thing to to talk about your style. Uh, one thing that's I love about your writing. I think maybe what you're probably known for is this these small human observations and a lightness of touch. Um, like a reserve. I love it. I think that there are some uh, saying uh, Lao Tzu says the fish must put his own mouth on the hook uh, I I think I think but you do know that saying right uh and I think that that's how a reader feels when they're reading your fiction it's uh it's just suggested the the hook is there but we have we have to imagine it we have to go after it
2: yeah strongly believe reading is as important as writing, which, you know, not like my reading, but the reader's reading. You know, I think that famous quote Nabokov saying, you know, the readers would do half a job. The writers do half, and they meet at the tip top of the mountain. And and I, I think, you know, I think that requires a special kind of readers. Not every reader has the patience, not every reader has the, I don't know, has the time to think or has the the willingness to imagine, but the need, like for me, I think I write for those readers who like to imagine with me, and so I'm not spelling out things for them. I think they have to live through. Certain moments in the story, so I I, I think that
1: always might be case. And I think, in a way, I mean, even though we're, uh, I suppose, literature and film and television we're uh, pitted against each other, or the way it's represented, you know, uh, film is not good for. Yeah. But in a way, you, it's becomes uh, storytelling has become. I think it's been aided as well by film and television now, in that. Uh, people have become accustomed to rapid cuts, you know, eliminating. Yes. Yeah, and so now you can just suggest things, whereas in the past in storytelling, you know, you had to say everything. But um, I think it's it, it, it's something that we've learned from as well, you know, fiction writers. Yes, um, and
2: that's that's very true. I think. You know, it's also you know, I'm just thinking that, for instance, if read Shakespeare. You know, even though, like, the most dramatic Shakespeare moments, you can still have a lot of backstories, stories. And, you know, there's life beyond that stage, and and I just think, you know, that's the thing that writer does, a good writer does. You know, you, you see this life, but there, there's 10,000 life beyond that stage. Mm.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the, in, the intrigue that makes us want to find out what they're doing behind. And, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I, I saw the film adapted, well I guess there was another film, but I only saw A Thousand Years of Good Prayers adapted, and you, you adapted that script yourself?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I did.
1: And, and, and I didn't see The Princess of Nebraska, but what was your experience? Some writers have misgivings, what was your experience of that process?
2: in to when I went well, in to adapt that first I thought that story was not nothing happens in the story. Basically nothing happens. And two I think I mean I, it's all internal. Everything is internal. And it's to me it's hard to imagine internal things. Internal landscape on screen. So I wasn't. I wasn't very convinced that it could be done. So, and I, when you talk about storytelling, I did learn through writing that script a little bit more about storytelling, and so I, I learned what I wanted to learn from writing that script, which made me a
1: little happier, I think. <laughs> So, yeah, I thought I thought it was adapted well, but I, I understand what you mean because so many of your stories have this uh, subtext or um, internal psychology or repressed emotion, or, so that's hard to bring to the screen. Yeah. I mean, one thing I
2: learned from, I guess, just working with the director and, you know, the group or the crew, or you, whatever you call that, I, I, one thing I learned is, you know, when you write fiction, you really are in control, and you are in your, you know, you're in your pajamas, and you, you write everything. Everything can be worked to the, to the maximum, you know. I don't know, you can work on it forever, but film is always, you always have to reconcile, you know, you have to resign to certain moments of you know, imperfection. So that I learned, I think, it's, it is, it is, you know, they, a lot of people work together and not everyone is the same. So, that I, I also think that's a good experience for me.
1: Can you imagine if novels were written that way? I mean, I know the script writers do that.
2: I know. I mean, like, you know, you the Irish writer Ross and Summer are, some are Ross and Edith, uh, I cannot say her name, because this the Irish cousins. Do you know
1: what I, who I'm saying? Maybe I'm not hearing correctly. I don't know. Um,
2: oh, let me, let me, let me tell you.
1: It's um, love, and
2: oh, okay, sorry, love, love, a summer,
1: summer, real love. some um. Okay, let me, let me. It's okay. Sorry, it's Ross summer,
2: real. Okay. Yes. And, okay. Is it Ross like summer? I mean, it's just. They're older, they're older generations. It's Edith Somerville and
1: and Martin Ross. Okay, they're yes. irish Yes. And they're cousins. Uh,
2: I think almost all the novels they wrote together. <laughs> Actually, not in the same place. They live in two places. They, they wrote the novels by communicating with each other, corresponding in letters.
1: Yeah, It's it's hard to imagine. Because writers are so stubborn, how they do I know. that. how
2: did, I think they? These two were really fascinating. I think maybe just by nature they complemented each other very well. So, but mm. I, I agree with you. I don't think this would
1: be necessary at all. Yeah, I I don't know. You'd have to. It's it's, it's a strange thing, but it's all, it's beautiful what happens in theater and that. I think that's part of the magic of it, that it even gets made, you know, how it yeah, all, all yeah. works. Um, there was a line, I'm sorry, I, I switch around, I, I jump around with my questions, but... Um, right. um, there was a line in, um, what is that to do with me, and you wrote, anger made our lives meaningful. And uh, I just thought that was such an interesting observation, Um I don't I don't know why I, I remember it now, but anyway, on another note, what do you think makes your writing meaningful for you, personal? Oh you
2: know, I, I think that well, it's interesting because that piece you quoted was very early. Mm-hmm. And I sort of felt maybe I lost that anger. And I think that anger, when I say anger, I think it's By reading that at a certain age, you know, I think that anger referred to when you were 20s, you know,
1: you looked at the world. Yeah. So,
2: in fact, I think I'm often quoted as not being angry enough. Or at least, you know, when I go to panel, people will say you're not angry enough. It's interesting. So what makes meaningful is, I think I'm... See, I'm sure you get the impression when I talk about anger, I'm very ambivalent about anger. Then I think it's not anger; it's everything in life I feel ambivalent about. And if you ask me a question, I can never say this or that. I can give you both answers. So I think the meaningfulness of writing is—it's really one place you can be ambivalent. And you can be enlightened about your characters. You don't have to make any judgment. And so, I I think it's just
1: it's a very great place for ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you can really explore. You can explore characters who are malevolent or and not and not judge them. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's but it's great. I think it's like I, I I do keep on thinking it is a like acting. It is inhabiting another person's skin without the consequences. That's
2: right, that's exactly right. And and I mean I do it's it's interesting because when we were travelling in Ireland early this
1: summer. Oh yes. Like after a couple of days I started to talk with an Irish accents when I ordered food.
2: <laughs> so you're so rude, you know, you cannot do that. That's so rude, you're mocking people. And I knew that I shouldn't do that. I mean, it was actually, I did not do that intentionally or conscientiously. It was just sometimes you pick up things. And as a writer, you really actually put yourself into that position right away. So I mean, it's easy to slip out of your mold and be somebody else.
1: Well, that's, that's part of, I imagine that's in, you know, as an actor prepares, I guess a writer prepares, you know, you're listening to sounds, you're observing things. And, and part of it is, yeah, just learning how people talk. I do that too all the time. It's, it's crazy. No, it's, I meet someone who's German or South African and suddenly, you know, I come back with a South African accent and my husband says, who are you?
2: <laughs> I know, I know. I, know. Isn't that interesting? I think yeah, I do that to British people. One. If you know, i am in London. I speak like really like British English. I, I know that what you mean. It's, it, it's it's again it's you you're keen to pick up
1: these things because they don't belong to you. Yeah, no, it's okay. I think it's good because then it, I think when it comes time for you to write a character from these backgrounds, or it's the ear you're training your ear, and um, and writing is musical. You know, we don't talk about it, but it is musical.
0: I'm Yuki Jiang, a sophomore from Syracuse University, majoring in broadcasting and digital journalism. I'm associate interviews producer in the creative process. As a Chinese student who also have a great interest in creative writing, I was really fascinated to hear yi talk about how she got infatuated in literature, how she feel having a new language, especially which she has gained after arriving in another country, and her true thoughts on storytelling difference in literature, television, and film. Nowadays, we have become so attached to the digital world, and decreasing people are willing to spend their time on literal reading. I believe those emotion-evoked literature works take us away from the era filled with pot boiler for a while and provide an opportunity of deeper and more mature thinking, which is really important for individual development. One of the things that I'd like to focus on is the adaptation of the literature work. In common sense, film, television, and literature represent themselves in literally various angles. So adaptation may be a high-risk storytelling choice to gain acceptance from the audience, especially the fans of the original work. Some certain psychological and internal expressions that the literature works present are really hard to bring to the screen. Agree with that. I used to watch the adaptation of Norwegian Wood, which used to be one of my favorite books, with expectation. Although the plot keeps the pace with the original work well, returning the clues and the characters and expressing the sorrowful beauty in a soothing image style, but the film didn't succeed in displaying profound aspects, including the young's thoughts about life and death, the pursuit of true meaning of life, the exploration of the meaning of existence through sex, and the honesty of self and love when Lee said regarded herself as an old-fashioned writer and people often comment that she's a 19th century writer because her novels and stories explore old-fashioned themes like shame, suppressed emotion, collective responsibility, which are not addressed by a lot of writers nowadays, I can really relate to that. As our country developing, those problems have become less prevalent among society but have never disappeared. Homosexuality problem is one of them. As of love and marriage, China is still stuck in a relatively conservative stage. That love is for breeding, so homosexuality should be banned until now. Homosexual couples can't walk hand in hand on the street or they will be the object of ridicule. Homosexual works are usually automatically filtered. Homosexual works are usually automatically filtered by the censorship system, so that cannot be put onto the screen. That may also be the reason why her works cannot be published in China. Some homosexuals are even forced to date and deceive innocent people for marriage, but the truth is that love is only the matter of each other, not gender. So this kind of social problem should never be ignored and this thesis will never be out of date. Sometimes it's hard to imagine what on earth Lee had experienced during her living and literature journey in America to make herself such a Thailand writer, but it is easy to feel attached through her paperwork which reflects herself to some extent. But the significance of literature is comprehensive because it is open to each person's own interpretation, which is what opens the door for discussion, connection, and over time a sense of belonging.
1: So oh, yeah, do you, ha- do you play any musical instrument?
2: I, I, when I was
1: younger, I played a quoting which mm-hmm. I give to one of my characters. Okay, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it's funny. Well, but writing is how you continue your your music. That's right. And I think um, I'm thinking you you gave some of your from what I was reading some of your memories to uh, your the characters in, in the I'm thinking not the vagrants, no, in. Um, In Kind and Solitude, yes. Uh, So that was, um, was that a difficult book to write?
2: Is that a difficult A little bit, I think. You know, part of it, I think if you look at stories, and if you look at the vagrants. I think, for the vagrants is a bigger novel, but time-wise it's contained, it's a like one to two months time in my head. And it's easy to write those two months and say twenty years. I think it's just how to arrange the time in my head. I think writing fiction is always how to you know how like you figure out how to treat time. So kinder than solitude I think it's just how to treat that transition of time. And it it took me a while to figure out how to do it.
1: It was interesting, and in both I guess um, they're, they're interesting because they both um, start with a death of kinds, and yeah. uh, uh, it's a very dramatic moment. And, uh, and yet some of the themes they share these themes, um, like I'm thinking how of one person who is a victim is, in a way not the victim, or how, how some you know a, a violence committed on one person contaminates a, a whole community or several people.
2: Yes, and you know, it's so funny because someone asked me, so why does everyone start with a death? And I always think, you know, death is not the end of the story. Death is always the starting point of the story. And because death is such a, well, there's no private, private death. You know, if you think about someone who's, like in the newspaper, someone died. Yesterday in New York, and she was murdered. That was really public. But even with you know a very unknown person, when this person died, all of a sudden, I think it's no longer private, and people would come to the memorial service. People would talk about this dead person in a way that I think really death moves people beyond their own control of their own selves. So, so I I, I think for that reason, I I like this about that is the beginning of a bigger story that no longer
1: belongs to that person who just died. Sure. It's like a, an unraveling. So you see how did that person become unraveled and all the threads that brought them there. Yes. Um, so I was interested, I guess you, you uh, for a while you were an involuntary um, soldier in that Chinese army?
2: mm mm-hmm. About a year, yes.
1: So what was what was that experience like? I mean, how do you, how did you draw on that for your writing later?
2: I think, well, I mean, in retrospect, I really appreciate it, and partly is because I went there when I was eighteen. I came out when I was nineteen. Was the time that when you started to be leveled. Your whole, I guess, life philosophy, and you know, your view of the, the world. And I went in. When we talk about anger earlier, the yes, anger makes me but when I went in, I was much angrier than when I came out of that service. Partly, Like, I felt that I was. I went. I went in with this. You know, young people. I went in with this. This urge to become someone to have like a big personality.
1: Sure.
2: To to become like to have a like, character in me. But I realized mean, it's, it's really boring after a year. I realized, mean, you know, I could become a personality. And I was a personality, and you know. I was a character. It was rather disappointing. And but yeah, you know, the the moment you put yourself in that situation a lot of things are black and white, you know, the Army is bad. You know, the people who are present in the Army, they're bad. But they're, it's not true. Everybody is so complicated. So I came out, I, I think, I think the moment I left the Army, I knew that I could never judge anyone, and I became really ambivalent about a lot of things.
1: Yeah, exactly, the army forces you into false positions and the fiction is like the opposite of that, it's all the shades of grey. And... Yes, absolutely. And I was curious, I I'd, I'd read something else, I guess you, you must have, uh, you witnessed a, a denunciation before an execution? Yeah, that was when I was in, even before
2: elementary school, so probably that when I was five.
1: Okay, wow, that's quite extreme.
2: Yeah. I... I, I think, it, you know, I, it's interesting. You know, I didn't really feel anything weird. I mean, I, as children, everything comes to you very naturally. You just, you just remember these moments without understanding them. And only when you're grown-up and you look back, you realize, well, there's more to that understanding.
1: And it, cause, so was The Vagrant sort of your way of making sense of that and then the wider story of what happened in that time?
2: Yes, I think so. And, and I so the system I set it up, you know in 1978 to seventy nine, which sort of, you know, overlap with my confusion, years of my confusion. And in a way, I think writing is always a way to... Out your
1: confusion. Yeah, because I think I, I don't know did we, sp- we speak about this before you were saying um, you were sort of taught never to put your thoughts into words and that ca- that ca- must have come out of um, what ha- the cultural revolution. Do you think that your writing actually is part of you know you are formed by the cultural revolution in a way?
2: To not to write in Chinese is formed by that, I think. I mean, not to put your thoughts into words is, well, as a lifelong college view, you know, my parents, and they would teach us these things. So you learn early on, you know, these things are not, you're not supposed to do these things. And and I, I think for me, it's, I, it's interesting because if I look back and I thought maybe I really didn't have any thoughts because when I was told not to put thoughts into words, maybe I just didn't have the words for myself. Maybe I only started to really think hard when I started to think in English. So so in that sense, I think maybe English is a, not my second language, but also it's your first language. So I would say yes. I think the whole the long... I don't know, each towards your to like and probably, you know, parching on you know, by
1: the cultural revolution. And I can imagine how frustrating as someone who is uh, you know, potential writer and is curious about people, um, you know, people hiding their thoughts and not saying what I mean there's a there's a constant uh, how do you say it's almost like a constant mystery, you know, to try to figure out what's really being and what's really going on. Uh, did you find you were like that, as a kid, very curious, asking lots of questions? Or?
2: I was very curious and never asked questions, because you also learned quickly not to ask questions, because, I mean, this is very Chinese, you know, when you were young, you were not confident as a human being, so whatever you wanted to know, people really did not care about those things. So, I didn't ask questions, but I, I was very curious. I, I, I think I, you know, I offended people when I was really young because I was so curious. I would stare at them just for a long time.
1: Mm, me too. I did that kind of stuff. <laughs>
2: I know. Isn't that, isn't that fun to stare at people? People would really be offended, and they would they would say really mean things.
1: It's it's nice to have wonder. I mean, it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, that's sort of the thing. Well, growing up, you're supposed to oh, uh, you know, learn not to do these things. Don't uh, step on people's personal space. But you know, the wonder of the child, and I think that's what all kinds of writers or all kinds of artists have is that they have this wonder, this curiosity. Uh, Yeah. It was absolutely. Yeah, it makes it. uh, uh, It is one of uh, makes the fortunate. Career, I think it's it's to to keep that alive. It keeps you young, in effect. Um, So, of your of all your characters you've written, who is the closest, or who are a few of the closest to your own personality? Would you say? Oh wow, that's a very difficult question. Of all the
2: characters, I would say you know the narrator in Kindness,
1: Uh the novella. Yeah. And yes. I think she probably is close to me
2: in many ways. No not my story, but she she speaks in a voice that's close to my voice.
1: She also has your reading habits.
2: She does and well certainly she does. Yes. Yeah. And she loves a lot of writers, I think, love. And then I think I also I mean, I think with the Ravens people ask about that, too. I think with the weak I felt, when I was writing it, I felt very close to Peter Booth, oh.
1: old man. Yes, yes.
2: And I, I sort of felt I lived with all the characters in that novel, but I lived the novel through him more than anybody else. So he's close to me. And then with kind of anthology it's very interesting,
1: Yeah. Well, I thought about the silence too uh, of her her quietness. So, yes, but well, I don't consider, you know, I, I don't know if you want me to take I'll send you the transcript because it's a bit of a spoiler to say that. But, um, yes. but uh, you know, I don't consider her a real murderer. She, it's complicated. She is. And you know, I actually, when
2: sometimes I don't, you know, someone asked me, you know, if she did intend to murder. I don't think she even knows herself, you know, she's just like half-heartedly like, doing things, and she, when you talk of the consequence, it's interesting, because for her, she views the world a little differently from us, I mean, from, when I say from us, or from everyday people, it's like, she actually does not think about the consequence, and the consequence is that she's, I don't know. I mean, she's not concerned with consequences, which is
1: fascinating to me. Yeah, it's almost—I don't know. It's like she looks at her actions through a perspective of a long time. How do you say? It's like how a leader views things that happen that are incidental, like a death, as opposed to the, the big scheme, the big uh, story.
2: Yes. She. She's. Uh, she's absolutely you know, it's it's interesting that she looks at herself, I always imagine, you know, like you turn the the telescope around and you put your hand in the telescope, your hand becomes really farther farther away, it's really far away, small and, and boring. I think the whole life she has lived is lived that way, you know, it's like a reverse telescope and she can look at her life and Somehow she can say, you know, that life is so far from me, and she just doesn't. I, I don't. I think there are just only a few moments in, in that novel that she says, "Well, oh, that's me." I mean, most of the time, she says, oh, that's
1: someone. That someone is interesting." Mm. Yeah, it is funny. Yes, it, I'm not funny, but it's it's strange. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in, in a number of your stories, too, um, you have these solitary characters. Um, yes, like, like her, and also, I was wondering where you think it comes from. Is, do you think it's more prominent in China because of the former one-child policy, or do you think the sense of solitude comes from somewhere else? Oh, no, I don't
2: think it's from that. You know, well, I think. In fact, I don't think Chinese are very good at being solitary. And it's not encouraged, and also it's crowded place. And people, like when I was in college, I would go to say summer parties by myself, and people would think it's really strange. You know, why would you go somewhere by yourself? You're supposed to always be with someone. So I don't think it's it's solitary is not solitary is not encouraged in the culture. And and I think for probably
1: for that reason, solitude is important for me and for my characters too. Oh, okay. That this is interesting. It's true. Yeah, because I, I there isn't um. Hmm. Anyway, sorry. I'm just digesting that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about teaching um, your teachers for, at Iowa. I guess Marilyn Robinson was one of your teachers.
2: Yes, Marilyn Robinson is was my teacher, and I really like her work, and I like her teaching too. I mean, she's the kind of the writer. She would not teach you how to write. She would teach you how to read. And really, you know, I don't think I. I mean, I, I think people always say, you know, writing is not teachable. I agree, writing is not teachable, but reading is. And. She's reading the work with Marilyn Robinson, I think well, when I was in school, she would teach Moby Dick, she would teach the Bible, she would teach you know, New, England, New England Poets, and she would teach Faulkner. All these are semester-long reading courses, and I learned so much from
1: her. Mm-hmm. So, and, and now, because you're a teacher as well, and so, what are some of the things you like to impart to your students? What is your curriculum? What are you teaching them at the moment?
2: I remember when I would teach short stories. You know, I I think partly I love short stories, and I have this record of teaching short stories and writing short stories. And and again, I think I I think, and I also teach writing, but I teach writing also with the belief that writing is not something that you can teach. Reading it is mostly I I think I look at my students. I think. They are not very well-read. Even those who want to become writers, they're not the most well-read people. And so, Ponte, I think I just like to read with them and point out the things I see in the book. Say, I see in Madame Balbary or I see in one piece, I would share with them. So...
1: You're teaching,
2: yeah. My is they can read closer.
1: Right, you're teaching them to notice.
2: Yes, I think that's a good way to say. Yeah, you know, you really need to. I can you say, you know, when you're a writer, you notice things. That's the only thing you can do is you see things other people miss, and and you read for things that other readers miss. So that's the thing I teach.
1: Yeah. And I liked this um, this comment you made before, um, that your only urgency is to stay as intrusive as possible when you write about characters. Um, you, have you always uh, approached writing from that point of view? Yes, I think so. And I think, for me, it
2: seems important. Um, you know, I, I, Yes, I get that. I, one
1: thing is I agree with myself <laughs> yeah, that one is smart. what she said is 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 good <laughs> now and i look <laughs> i no I agree too we have to yeah. it's it's part of the fish must put its own mouth on the hook um school of mm-hmm. creative writing, but yeah, because I look over some of the influence, I guess you have um tolstoy turgenev uh, elizabeth Bowen, and um they have this lightness of touch too um. I don't know if you could talk about some of your uh, some other stories by other writers that you really admire or, or learned from.
2: You know,
1: it's interesting because I'm reading, this is so
2: completely
1: different. I'm reading Patricia
2: Highsmith. You know, Patricia Highsmith. Yes. Yes, I read her. You know, if you read, say, her crime novels or her novel. it's action after action after action, you know, Tom Ripley kills one person, Tom Ripley kills another person. But actually, I I started to read her story. Some of her stories are just masterful because nothing happens.
1: Oh, yes, yeah.
2: Really, nothing happens. You feel the danger, the threatening that something is going to happen, a disaster. But really nothing happens. And I think that touch, as you says. You know, it is the same touch. It's it's to allure the
1: leader rather than to impose you know, something on you. Oh, exactly. No, she I think she's very masterful and, and she's fascinating. Uh, because there's this she 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 strips away like what we're taught, our manners and, and, and she's writing about psychopaths in the books, mainly psychopaths. But yeah. so yeah, but again, I mean, I think that that uh, you know, with you've written about characters too who have this, who are very um, with with who uh, who are very understandable. I understand her situation. Uh, I'm not judging her, and that's what Patricia Highsmith does as well. You understand Ripley? Why he would do these things? Yes,
2: I yeah I I. It's okay. I, you know, I think not many writers do that. I mean, I think Patricia has is a very good example that when you read some Wigley, um, you know, at there are certain moments he feels so genuine in his murderousness. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. He's very genuine. You know, I mean, he's very sincere. He's very vulnerable, except he's killing someone. You I mean, mm. understand his whole logic but that's illogic and i think he writes about
1: illogic much better than most people yes another one that i mean it's he's more um he's even harder to read but i I like a jim thompson if you're talking about uh, writing about psychopaths oh i
2: have none jim thompson
1: yes you know he wrote the killer inside me and um what else he wrote I'm forgetting the names but they're always scary um oh the grifters uh, uh-huh. the killer inside me though is even like more extreme than Patricia Highsmith and oh, okay and yes is psychopath and yet you understand because he gives a reason and uh is scary right yes yeah, okay okay I saw it
2: the killer inside me I I need to check it out
1: Yes. Well they don't there was a movie made, but don't uh, w- read the book uh, before. It's
2: right, yeah. Right. I probably won't see the movie in any case. Oh
1: good. No, it's a good one. Now don't not, you maybe don't want to read it before going to bed because it's not that it is um it's not like it's a, a, a physical danger frightening. Uh, that it, there is, but it's it's the fact that you are in the head of a psychopath. And it's uncomfortable to live there. So, I mean, it's... So now I'm curious. Now you're reading Patricia Highsmith. Are you going to write um, a thriller, a straightforward thriller, or...? <laughs> no, I
2: don't think so. I, I, well, I, I think that, that's the problem with me. Is, you know, I would like to write someone who's not that extreme. Like, except, I mean, maybe I am going to be character... No, I'm, I'm. not planning to. But you, you can never say you're not planning. I didn't really plan with kinder than solitude. I mean, I knew before I started. I knew there was a poisoning, but I didn't know how it happened and who did it. I didn't really know who Ruby was until she became who she was. So no, I don't know. I can't. I can't plan.
1: Okay, no, but that's good, because we discover it with you. That's the most natural way. Uh, And that's what's nice, too, because with your novels, even though they're novels, they have this sense of, um, hmm, uh, the rhythm has this excitement that I associate with your short stories, you know? Thank you. It's like, because I love short stories, and I think they're not championed enough. Uh, and any the novel, it's rare because there's usually these dead spaces, even if they're very good novelists. There's some you feel like, oh, they're just going through the motion, and they're getting to what really is interesting. But yours, every every uh, segment is has the uh, compression of a short story. Thank you. You
2: know, I, I well, I I really would not for that to
1: happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love, so I'm going to, let's see, there, I guess I should ask you about, um, oh yeah, maybe I should ask about China. So I just, I wind down. I, I know I've, you've been giving me so much of your time, but now when you, I'm curious, when you go back to China, what is it like? What does it feel like? Um, does it feel like a foreign country to you? A little
2: bit now. I think, you know, I have lived in America for 19 years, and that's, you know, with- probably the majority of my grown-up years are lived here, so uh, I would say I am on the cusp of becoming an outsider. I'm on the cusp of becoming a foreigner in, my, in China. But I, you know, I know the language I can describe for people's you know, facial expressions, so these things are still really helpful. So you are both inside and outside at the same time.
1: Right, and in terms of how much has changed, you know, because it's so, so rapid, everywhere, but especially in China, um, does that make it harder for you to write stories about China in the present? You know, yes and no. I think, I would say, people
2: don't change that much, so, so, it, it, it would, I think it changes the situation, and the external things, you know, the, the landscape and money and materials, all these things have changed. And the nature of, of the people hasn't really changed that much, So, which is, you know, encouraging can. I have no problem writing about it. I think the problem is maybe, for me, is I may lose certain kind of curiosity about things that do not change. So, like, I went to China this past summer, and I had a different expectation. I thought China would have changed much more than I imagined. Mm -hmm. And I went there. I think things are a little bit too predictable to the point that I was losing a little bit interest. And I don't think that's good for a writer. If you're losing interest, you're not going to write about it. Well, which is probably fine, and, you know, I actually, it's interesting because I was just talking to Lady Smith last Friday, and she mm-hmm. said the same thing. She said she, went, she goes back to London now, you know, to end up in London, and she said people in the street, they talk, you know, different ways, and she doesn't understand their language. But it's okay, you know, you just, you can, you can only ask writers, you can only write about certain periods, certain times during that period. And, so, uh, my sense is maybe my work will move, you know, move
1: towards the West. Okay. Yes, I can imagine because uh, when you came to America, you know, the gap, uh, uh, capitalism is was just really starting, you know, in China. And now it's like they're better capitalist than anyone, even though, you know superficially it's not but it really is more so than america yes
2: absolutely
1: so yeah so it's it's strange it's it's the it's becoming I that's the globalization um i guess i want to ask about because this project is about the creative process and the importance of the humanities you know it oh yeah i didn't tell you about the background i can't remember it's going to go to um universities like uh, I'm speak i I would like to bring it to California. I'm discussing with some universities there, but also Oxford and Sorbonne and um, um mit um, so we're right? so it's for students and professors. Um, okay. so it's good. I think altogether there'll probably be more than a, a million students that may look at this. so so uh, I could just talk a, a briefly about you know the importance of the humanities um. What can books do that nothing else can do for you?
2: For me, I think, you know, I, I, I think people get closer to each other only in books. You know, I think in real life, you know, if you look at real life, people hide from each other, you know, lots of things. And they are obliged to have talk and they're obliged to follow certain you know, social norms. And I, I just think in general people are lonely in that way. And and when people read them, especially fiction I think you know, I think characters don't I mean, characters may have to be hiding from one another, but it's it's good a book. We get to know the character in a way that maybe even more than we know ourselves. And and that's the closest one can't get to
1: another person and that's important exactly it's well for empathy and yeah no it i think it performs a lot of roles and i guess there's there's three questions that i could send them to me to or i could just ask you there it's for another section of the american writers museum they have a different Uh exhibit so there's three um which one or two American books or plays would you yourself recommend to the foreign leaders?
2: I would say Moby Dick. Moby Dick, Moby Dick, Moby Dick. <laughs> I mean, it's really one of the greatest American novels. And I read it every year. So I did I watch. Actually, it's interesting. I was asked a question by a Japanese magazine, and I said Moby Dick. And that's one novel. I don't know. It's... I think it's
1: possible to translate too. Okay, yes, well I, w- I would have to agree to you. it. Is, it is one of those. Um, so also, who in your childhood, for example, a parent or teacher, encouraged you to read books, and which one or two books do you remember most fondly?
2: I don't think, in fact, I actually don't think I was encouraged to read too much. And and I, I, you know, I grew up in a different situation, which like, I did not have a lot of access to books, and I, did not, I had never been to a library until I was 13. So I would say, you know, early on, Arabian Nights, someone loaned me a copy of Arabian Nights when I was eight, and it made a huge impression on me. It's just, you know, storytelling and tradition All I remember was making people running around. And so that's a, I mean I reread the book I thought was oh, such a beautiful book and Tuganev, I read Tuganev fairly early on again not understanding him he's not a writer for young people but I think exactly for that reason he's so moral he's so depressing that I actually love his writing a lot.
1: Okay, and then um, which books by writers of the other G8 countries uh, have been most important to you as a writer?
2: But you, you mean like other, not, other than
1: America? Yeah, other than America. The G8, you know, Canada, France, Germany, you, you know. Yeah, I, I
2: would say, you know, I think William Trevor, as you know, is a big
1: influence. Okay, we'll count him. I guess he's not one of the G8, but I don't know why they ask the G8 countries. So, Hello? <laughs> well, you—I guess UK. He is sort of UK. So, Hello, so, I cannot. Hear oh, you. sorry, sorry. Yes, that's okay. William Trevor is counted. I guess he's in England as well. So, William Trevor and anyone else. Oh, you
2: know, I would say Cheginius and Tolstoy. They, those are my sort of the, the lighter side movies.
1: Okay, and which books by them in particular? More yeah, uh, peace,
2: you know, more than Anna Karenina. You know, I would say if you pick one, it's more in peace. If it's like two, and you pick two, Anna Karenina in there. And to I think, I would say father and son, father and son. Right. And, and there's another, uh, there's another book, I'm, I'm just, it's called Rubin's. And it's oh, yes. a good book, too, to
1: me. Okay, well, that's excellent. So I'm just going to... Oh, yes, also, there were the recordings at the um, Festival des Um So I also have access to some of those recordings. So I just wanted to uh, say, I, if I if I may, I'll also adapt some of the interesting responses you made then, too. So um, it'll, you know, be a... I, I like to make a nice, long uh, interview. Um oh. Yeah, if that's okay um, and I'll be working on your portrait um, if you have any photographs that you particularly like just feel free to send them to me um, you know particularly copyright free images but I, I can also I look at videos often and photos um, and I put something together um, okay. um, I'll be doing that um, as, uh, I'll, and I'll also send you a transcript of the interview so you can make any changes or you know revise it as you wish um, I I don't know exactly when that'll be because I am working on the portraits, but I'll send that to you um, before it appears anywhere. And um, I think that I think that's about it. You've been most generous with your time, so I want to thank you again. Um, it's just. Thank you for doing this. Oh no, thank you. It's been a, it's been a love just a lovely conversation, and I, I I'm I find it so inspiring for my own work. So I'm so happy to be involved in this.
2: Thank you, thank you, and
1: we'll we'll be in touch. Yes, excellent. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Last thing, if you do send me photos, or if you don't send me photos, um, it may it's just something I've been asking authors is if they want to send me their signature. So it's a kind of little touch that I put at the end of the interview. You know, the author's signature, if you want to. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. Absolutely.
2: I'll, I have. I think I have to leave
1: version of my signature somewhere I can send to you. Okay. Oh well excellent. No rush on that. But okay. Thanks very much and you have a good day. Thank you. I I, I really I'm... enjoyed reading your books. Thank, thank you. Thank you. you. Bye
0: bye. Bye. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating university and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Yuki Jiang. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by Ethan Neil Trail. Has this interval sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submission as creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or publish on our website www.creativeprocess.info Want to get involved in exhibition or intervals? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info